Hi, and welcome to a podcast from Hope Springs Church Coventry. For more, please find us on Facebook at Hope Springs Church or on Twitter, we're at Hope Springs Cobb. Thank you and enjoy. Yeah, so today we're carrying on uh, the series about For the Journey. Um, so we're looking at Christian practices that enable us to be sustained on the journey and we're particularly following up you know from the Barnabas community stuff so we've kind of acknowledged that we can talk in trite Christian ways about the journey and the mission we have or the calling we have and we can make it really romantic and abstract about serving the poor and, 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 and changing a city but actually when we come down to the nitty-gritty we have to realize that we're going to be dealing with awkward people uh, mainly because we ourselves are awkward people um, and that there's a great reason why the New Testament labours the idea of love being things like patience and kindness and gentleness and, you know, not being angry and stuff for too long because, actually, when it comes down to it, relationships are hard, relationships are difficult, relationships aren't abstract, they're real and they, they confront you not only with awkward people but they confront you with yourself. Um, and so the idea of sustaining ourselves through the journey isn't to have some trite, uh, platitudinal type sentimental practices of, oh, we'll lock ourselves in our prayer closet for, you know, three hours every morning and we'll read our Bible for two hours every night. And, you know, we'll, we'll, be, we'll always be of a sound mind and never grumpy with our kids and never grumpy with each other. But it's about, like, living a real life. And today what I want to cover is community, the practice of community. Um, so if you want to turn with me to Ephesians 3, I just want to start with this, um, this amazing prayer, um, supposedly by Paul. Um, and so remember, the, the idea of practice isn't some discrete, um, finite period of time every day or every week, but it's just anything that points us towards the Christ and that allowing us to be conformed to him so as we engage with the Christ we become transformed into his likeness because we are made in his likeness and it's just kind of revealing who we truly are so uh, this prayer then for this reason I kneel before the father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you and that's plural you not you as an individual with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all of the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ and to know his love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever amen um, so if I ever needed a leap off point to talk about community that is it how do we comprehend the love of God how do we understand it how do we engage with it it is not me as an individual it is us as a community <coughs> And when I'm talking about community, I don't just mean a group of individuals gathering on a Sunday morning. Because it's really easy to not be community, but be a, a room full of individuals. You know, like when you go to a party, I'm one of those guys that goes to a party and stands talking to exactly the people I know. 
about subjects that I know are safe. So typically that'll be me talking about football. And that means that I'm not relating to anybody. I'm not getting out of my comfort zone. I'm not genuinely relating to people. I'm not genuinely interdependent with people. As a practice, community helps us on the journey. So what I want to talk about is, I love this word, the dialectic of community. Now, dialectic simply means, it's a bit like dialogue, but what it is, is it's a discussion with an aim to get to the truth. So I might hold a position, and Matt might hold a position, and what we do is we debate, we discuss, we argue, not with the aim of saying that I'm right and you're wrong, but with smoothing out the rough edges of both of our positions until we discover the truth. So dialectic is just really this coming together of differing positions or differing people or different entities and smoothing it out until you reach the unity of truth. So, for example, when we do the planning meetings for preaching, what tends to happen is is that Steve will have an agenda (coughs) and we'll sit in in their uh, kitchen area and then we'll end up having a debate about something for about two hours. And then in the last 30 minutes, we'll be like, well, who's doing Sunday then? And the reason is, is because I hold certain ideas about how the Bible should be read or certain, you know, themes or theology. And Steve will have other ideas and say, like, somebody that I've found so entirely provoking and it's brilliant is Jez. Um, So I've had to, you know, so he'll throw out a question. I'll be like, right, I'm going to have to go away and really think about that now. And the idea is, isn't that, um, you know, Steve's come in and said he's always right because he's the, the leader or whatever. But actually, that we discuss. And I find these things really formative because it makes me think because, you know, I love and respect Steve. I love and respect uh, Jez. I love and respect Trish, you say. And then when somebody throws out something, I'm like, never thought about it like that before. You know, for example, I've said it quite a few times that um, the way Steve talks about certain subjects... I'm like, wow, that's amazing. I'd have, never, I'd have never made that connection, you know, like, because he's different to me. And I need that. Because if I am to see Christ, I can't just use my lenses. I have to be introduced to different facets of the Christ by other people. And that might mean people that really, really rub me up the wrong way. Or people that I'm very, very much akin to, you know, so middle-class white male, um... In England, it's very easy to get on with somebody like that that's into football, you know. (laughs) (coughs) So the church is a community, is such such a community of interdependent, diverse others. And when I talk about others, I mean somebody that's not me. So even in this room right now, we have different races, different ages, different genders, different economic positions possibly. We all have different experiences, we all have different jobs, we all have different interests. But I need you. It's not a condescension of me saying I need you to fill me up or something. And this will become important in a minute when I talk about further reach as a community. But I genuinely need you. Because I will never achieve any sort of um, fullness of being. I will never progress in life if I do not encounter other. Love is all about other. Why did God create? Because of other. Love naturally and necessarily requires other to work. Love it if you if you love equally somebody exactly the same as you. That it's a, it's a, it's a null value. And the relationship, the relational aspect, is key to community. And this is how we engage with the Christ. This is why it is a practice of focusing us on the Christ and conforming us to the Christ. 
there's a mutual shaping it's not a one-way shaping so in the church for example we tend to think of it as being a one-way thing we have the guy or the the woman standing at the front telling you how things are and then you leave the church building on a Sunday and you go home and figure that out for yourself so there's there's a talking head and then you go away and figure out your salvation with fear and trembling on your own in your prayer closet or whatever and then it's a very individual thing but community is central a central aspect so it should be that so for example this morning i'm talking to you but i'm also being shaped by you so i might have conversations with you guys that shape exactly how i think so that means that i'm not preaching the same thing every week because over time i'll have been impacted and i should change over time as I engage with more of Christ I should be revealing more of Christ as I move on and you know you could listen to something I spoke on you know five years ago and I'd probably be horrified by what I was saying five years ago because I'd probably think that's absolute nonsense I mean two weeks ago I'd probably think the same thing to be fair (laughs) and again so naturally the closest relationships we have will be the ones that shape us the most so for example uh, with Nick you know a married relationship now, purely on a probability basis, she sees me the most, she will see the best of me, and she will see the very worst of me. And there's an honesty, there should be an implicit honesty in that relationship where there, there, there's an encouragement when I'm at my best, you know, this is really great, and there's a, there's a, there's a pushback when I'm at my worst, you know, either this is not you, or some other language which might you know point in the same direction but maybe a bit more harshly or my daughters for example now this is a this is a really funny one because there is a mutuality in teaching even though i'm the parent and everything i will look at my daughters and see how they engage with the world and i'll be inspired so it's not all like me telling my daughters this is how things are but there's a mutuality if i'm sensitive enough and reflective enough and i'm humble enough to learn from a two-year-old and a five-year-old then there is Christ to be perceived in that. And that should shape me, okay? And so notice how community and relationship also require humility to actually engage with the Christ. Sometimes the relationships aren't relationships we choose. And sometimes they're uncomfortable. You know, that we might want to leave things in the abstract, so, for example, it's very easy to love people via Facebook. It's very easy to love people through charities. It's altogether different and more unsettling and more uncomfortable to love those people face to face. I'm not slamming charities or giving to charities or encouraging one another through Facebook at all. It's a fan- they're both fantastic vehicles of getting things to the right place at the right time. But you know that sending 20 quid to Tear Fund on behalf of Syrian refugees in, in bombed out cities is entirely less um, challenging than going to Syria. That um, sending money uh, to charities working in the Caribbean post multiple hurricanes is entirely more comfortable than having to be faced with a woman weeping over the bodies of her dead husband and child. 
but we can allow ourselves to be shaped by these uncomfortable relationships and by the way I'm not advocating for a lack of boundaries okay I don't have time to go into boundaries in these situations um, but these unsecure I deliberately use the word unsecure relationship. So a secure relationship is me and you guys, me and my wife, me and my kids. They're secure relationships, as in there's, 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 there's a certain context to those relationships. But say on a Monday night when I go to God's coffee shop, they are unsecure relationships. So for example, <laughs> um, I, I, told, I messaged you guys about this guy called Jamie. He's got three teeth in his head because he was a heroin addict. He clinically died. He's had most of his organs removed. Um, he, his, uh, his veins were so collapsed that they had to stick all of the needles for his operation in his head because the veins in his arms and his legs were so collapsed from overuse of heroin. Um, I uh, gave him my mobile phone number, um, which I still have qualms about. Uh, that is an unsecure relationship because I have no idea who this guy is, okay? And it may or may not have been a very stupid thing. I immediately regretted it the next day after having seven missed calls from him and about 20 texts. Um, but I'm allowing myself, deliberately being pushed out of my comfort zones uh, to be shaped by this guy. Because I don't just want to be the guy that stands up here and, and, and waves a Bible around and says nice things. I want to be a guy that's trying to live it, stupid or not. So this could be a massive failure um, or not. But we'll see. So being community, for me, uh, with the homeless on a Monday night, challenges me and expands my vision of the Christ. Because these people are so unlike me, it's ridiculous. Because I, honestly, I've had a secure family upbringing all of my life. I, I, I had access to education, which I did all right at. Um, I've always had friends. I've always lived in a middle-class environment. I've never feared for not having a job and all of these things. I've never particularly pursued um, drugs or alcohol in a way that is completely self-defeating. Um, and so my perspective on life is so vastly other to these guys. And yet I'm finding that this is a revelation to me. I'm finding Christ in absolutely new ways. So, for example, these guys are destitute. These guys are the guys that come up to you when they're having food and they bless you profusely. Because they're so grateful that you've put a hot meal in their stomach. And they'll say things like, I was so drunk yesterday that I didn't get to the salvation I'm in for my food. So I haven't eaten since Saturday. Um, all my things are in the Salvation Army hostel, but I've broken curfew so I can't get them. And these will be the same people that will start singing or dancing, you know, singing just random Phil Collins songs or something. Um, and all they've had is a bowl of soup and a bit of bread. And they're the most grateful people on the planet that you've ever seen. And I'm not trying to paint a romantic idea of it. Steve and, and Zachary came last Monday. And it's phenomenal. And, and so it's an unsecure place. But I need that community. I need it not because it allows me to condescend and be the benevolent giver. Because I'm a good Christian and that's what we should be doing. You know, charity, we should be doing charity. But it's because actually they reveal a, a Christ to me. 
that I will have never seen. Mother Teresa says it this way. Seeking the face of God in everything, in everyone, all the time, and his hand in every happening. This is what it means to be contemplative in the heart of the world, seeing and adoring the presence of Christ, especially in the lowly appearance of bread and in the the distressing disguise of poverty. Mother Teresa was really onto something. You see, in the abstract, my feelings might drive me to compassion, maybe. I might feel really cut up about seeing a homeless person on the streets as I'm walking, you know, from town to the railway station or something. Possibly. You know, because sometimes I'll give, sometimes I won't. But if I'm in a relationship with somebody, that's beyond feelings, that's beyond the abstract, that's beyond platitudes... And that's allowing a mutuality of shaping. So hopefully I'm bringing something to them. But I know for sure that they are transforming me more and more into the image of Christ. Why? Because Jesus says, Whatsoever you've done to the least of these, my brethren, you've done unto me. So the dialectic of community, we can talk about this as a community where we, where we butt up against each other sometimes, but in a very friendly fashion, in a very, um, for the most part, secure way. But sometimes there are those unsecure, not insecure, but it leads to insecurity sometimes, those unsecure relationships, those unsecure communities where we butt up against people that will be shaping us, maybe in not comfortable ways, but I believe that Jesus ushered us and gave us that unction to go to the poor because it would shape us and it would help us find him. So I want to talk about the requirement of community. So how does, why do we get shaped into the image of Christ? Why are we conformed into the image of Christ? Because of the dialectic of community. Because we have an idea about Jesus and we are confronted with other ideas about Jesus and they, they knock the corners off each other until we arrive at the truth. And it's a journey. It's not a one-time event. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, it doesn't automatically, iron doesn't automatically sharpen iron after one scrape, you know? So the requirement of community. Let me read this. This is, a, this is probably the most challenging book I've read all year. Um, I, I bought it out of interest. This guy is a, a psychologist. He's the head of the psychology department of some big university in America. And he's a brilliant theologian. Um, he'd be what you call a progressive sort of Christian, which is probably what I'd consider myself to be in. But he deliberately went to the edges of community. So he joined a Pentecostal church um, in like the really rough area of his town and he, and he, and he teaches uh, a kind of a Christian class in the local prison which is a maximum security prison and so basically all of my progressive tendencies of kind of disenchanting my theological world he basically nailed <laughs> down and pushed back uh, very deliberately from a voice that I could actually take it from but this is what he writes about community Drinking bad coffee to defeat Satan. That's a great chapter title, right? (laughs) When we love humanity in the abstract, like loving humanity on social media, you see where I got this idea from, or through political party, one of the things that's persistently hidden from us is our own inner darkness. Our own spiritual poverty and brokenness. Our inner demons. Community, real community, involves exposure. Only community can reveal and surface and unmask our inner brokenness. 
True community brings us into contact with people who expose our jealousies, our impatience, our intolerance, our pettiness, our selfishness and vanity. Consequently, persisting and sticking with community, and this is what the monastic tradition calls a vow of stability, the covenantal promise to stick with each other through thick and thin, Sticking with community is a spiritual discipline where you are working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Community is the place where our limitations, our fears, our egotism are revealed to us. We discover our poverty and our weaknesses, our inability to get on with some people, our mental and emotional blocks and our affective and sexual disturbances, our seemingly insatiable desires, our frustrations, our jealousies, our hatred and our wish to destroy. While we are alone, we could believe we loved everyone. Now that we are with others, living with them all the time, we realise how incapable we are of loving and how much we deny others, how closed in on ourselves that we are. This is why church is a form of spiritual warfare. When we are alone, loving the world through Facebook and Twitter, it's easy to convince ourselves we love everyone. In a community, however, our inability to love is exposed, along with our inability to get along with some people. It's community that leads us to confess somewhat ironically, I love humanity, it's just people that I can't stand. So turn with me to Ephesians 4. <coughs> so I'm going from verse 2. I'm going to just uh, read bits and pieces of it and then offer a little bit of commentary. So the, t- the title heading for my, in my NIV is Unity and Maturity in the Body of Christ. So this is us coming together, being conformed to the image and likeness of the Christ. And notice how he talks about how this happens. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called, to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ appointed it. This is just some brilliant writing, by the way. Notice how there's a unity and a oneness of a multitude of things. We are all one in Christ. But then he says, but to each one as an individual. So there's a communal oneness just great writing I think and there's an individual oneness so for the communal oneness to work the individual oneness has to be a certain way how do you how do you be that certain way as an individual because you've been given grace there's a grace to be humble there's a grace to stand the person next to you sipping bad coffee in between worship and, and, and the message right that's, that's the metaphor, that's the kind of language he uses that he says, as church people we traditionally drink bad coffee there's a grace and there's an unction, there's a movement towards, look, if this is going to work, if you are going to be Christ in the world, you're going to have to be humble you know, you're going to have to be grace-filled Christians, not because you can be victorious and celebrating and triumphing over everything, but simply to do the dirty work of getting on with that person that stood next to you. Okay, we like to do these magnificent things about Christ. But you know what? The hard work is loving the person in front of you. Why did Jesus send the disciples out two by two? 
so they could figure out what church looks like. If, he could have sent them out on their own. Jesus was on his own when he did those things. He did the healings. He did the walking on the water. He did the feeding of the five thousands. But why did the disciples didn't do it individually? They did it in groups. Where two or three are gathered, there Christ is in the midst. So there's a togetherness, there's a oneness, that each one, each individual, has something. So Matt, I am not you. Which Beth is pleased about. And you are not me, okay? And it sounds ridiculously obvious, but there's a oneness. I'm not the same as you, but we are one. And then carrying on uh, from verse 11. So the Christ himself gave pastors and teachers, apostles, prophets, evangelists, to equip the people for the works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach a unity in the faith and knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. This is why church is a practice, because it is what conforms us to the image of God. We cannot... My conformity to the Christ is not sufficient. It's our conformity to the image of Christ that is sufficient. Jesus gave the functions to conform us to the image of Christ. He didn't give apostles or prophets or evangelists to have a name on a business card. He gave them specifically that the body of Christ may be fulfilled. Whatever gifting I have is not for me to get my rocks off and get a popularity contest and get more friends on Facebook. Whatever I have been given by Christ is for you and you and you and those guys on a Monday and my family every other day and the, and the, and the, the parents in the playground at school whatever I have been given is not for me it's expressly not for me it's for everybody else to partake of just as much as what you have been given is for me mm-hmm. okay carrying on then Instead, verse 15, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is the Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. How do we come together? By speaking the truth in love, by dialectic community. We often use speaking the truth in love as a veil to insult somebody or to tell people what we really think as Christians so oftentimes we deploy that statement speaking the truth in love in an autocratic sense I can tell you whatever I think about you Matt but it's not it's a discussion I speak to you the truth that I have discovered Jesus Christ being the truth and I do it in love which is patience and forbearance and kindness and gentleness and so that and humility, because then when you speak the truth to me, love, I hear what you have to say about the Christ. And therefore I take on board what you have to say. I don't just rubbish it and say, well, he's not thinking how I think. So what you've got to say is rubbish. But because it's the truth I'm hearing, and I'm hearing it in love, which is humility, setting aside my own egotism, my own need to ascend, and I'm letting you shape me. That is the dialectical community. And what is the fruit of that? What is the fruit of the practice? That we become conformed to the Christ and we know him and his love in the fullness that it can possibly be. 
That is to say, only in a dialectic community, a community that speaks the truth to one another in love, different people dialoguing together with each other, engaged in love, can we truly discover, reveal and be conformed to the image of Christ. Only with all of the saints can we begin to perceive the love of God. The abstract notions of love or God or our benevolent feelings become incarnated amongst us. So we have these lofty, romantic, sentimental ideas of how we're going to change the world and how we're going to love the world and how we're going to see, um, I was talking to Gareth about this, revival breakout. But they're abstract. They're thought imaginings. But only when we start to be community, interacting with one another in visceral, concrete ways, do those things become incarnate in our flesh, in our body. Because only where two or three are gathered in his name. And that doesn't mean, oh, well, we're here in the name of Jesus. I don't say that when, I, when I'm handing out soup to, to the homeless on a Monday night. We're here in the name of Jesus. Now I'm there with the spirit of love for that person and that person is there in the spirit of gratitude and therefore Christ is discovered in the midst. Okay, so we've covered the dialectic of community, the requirement of community. Now we're going to talk about restoring community. So, talk to me, uh, so turn with me, don't talk to me. <laughs> I'll get confused. And you can talk to me in a bit because we have to have it because otherwise what I'm saying is rubbish, isn't it? <coughs> um, Mark 5. This is um, it's weird to have a favourite, isn't it? I love, there's, there's something very specific about this story that I really, really love and I've never really heard anybody pick up on it. So this is about the woman with the issue of blood. <coughs> I could get sidetracked all over the place here but I'll try not to be. So, Basically, Jesus has just come back uh, from, from uh, setting free a demoniac. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him. So there was lots of people around him, okay? You've got to keep that in mind. Then one of the synagogue leaders, so a very important person, named Jairus, came. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and he pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she'll be healed and live. So a really important person is pressing on Jesus for something. Uh, just to emphasise a large crowd followed and pressed around him so there's many people and they're like crowded together an important person is there asking Jesus for something then and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years lots of people important people all very close together now turn me to Leviticus 15 So there's a woman with bleeding for 12 years. This is what the law has to say about a woman with bleeding. Uh, So verse 19 in Leviticus 15. When a woman has a regular flow of blood, the impurity of the monthly period will last seven days. Anyone who touches her will be unclean till evening. Anything she lies on during that period will be unclean. Anything she sits on will be unclean. Anyone that touches her bed will be unclean, and they must wash their clothes and bathe with water. They will be unclean till evening. Anyone who touches anything she sits on will be unclean. They must wash their clothes and bathe in water, and they will be unclean till evening. Whether it's the bed or anything else she's sitting on, and when anyone touches it, they will be unclean. Just in case you're fuzzy, anything that goes near this woman is unclean. This woman 
hasn't been unclean for seven days. She's been unclean for 12 years. The nature of uncleanness means that she cannot participate in anything. No one will go near her. She cannot go to the synagogue. She cannot partake of meals with friends. She cannot go grab a coffee with a friend. She cannot leave a house. She cannot have friends. She cannot have children. She cannot have a husband. She cannot have a form of income because she is unclean for 12 years. She is in the middle of a large crowd. This large crowd is not fuzzy about this woman. They know who she is. She's the woman with an issue of blood and she's been unclean for 12 years. That's what the entire crowd is saying. Right? So this woman, in her shame, because she has been marginalised by the village for 12 years, she probably doesn't even live in the physical village. She probably lives away from the village because she is so unclean. And everybody's afraid of touching her. This woman, who's been subject to bleeding for 12 years, she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and spent all she had, so she's been exploited. Not only is she unclean and marginalised, she's been exploited. When she had heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd. So when it's not just some random person coming up the crowd. There would be a parting. Of the, oh, it's her. You know, don't come near me, woman. And she touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. And immediately the bleeding stopped and she felt in herself, in her body, that she was freed from suffering. Can you imagine this lady? How many times before she said, no, you know, just for the sake of having some human contact, I'm, I'm okay. Please just talk to me. Over that whole 12 years of being excluded, my kids aren't even, you know, my kids, one of my children's five. That's a long time. Sometimes it feels longer than others. But that's not even halfway to 12 years. And she felt in herself, I'm fine. Finally, I can be part of this community. I've just got to wait seven more days for ritual cleaning and I've got to go to the priest. At once, Jesus realised that power had gone out from him and he turned around. And we always interpret this as being a bit, Jesus being a bit grouchy. Who touched me? But I think that Jesus has got a plan going on right here. And then the disciples said, Jesus, you realise there are like hundreds of people here and you're asking which particular individual touched you. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear because she's been told for the best part of her memory that she is unclean, that she's excluded and she's afraid that she's going to be exposed for trying to touch people and make them unclean. And he says, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And he's not just saying a nice platitude. Oh, you know, go in peace. It's, you are whole. And be freed from your suffering. And that's not just the bleeding, that's the exclusion. But where did he do it? He did it in front of the important people and in front of a whole crowd. You know, sometimes Jesus tells people, don't tell anybody. But this woman who had been excluded by her community for 12 years, you know, the rock star in town, Jesus, because at this point he's popular, has said in front of everybody, as a rabbi, so somebody with some respect and authority, 
he's turned around to her and deliberately picked her out of the crowd, deliberately got everybody to focus on her and said, she is clean. She is whole. Why do I say this? Jesus deliberately brings this lady to the attention of the community because he's restoring community. What if, what if the point of Jesus' healings wasn't just the restoration of the individual, but the restoration of the entire community? Because that community still lacked because that woman was not allowed to be part of it. She has a perspective on life, a perspective on the Christ, definitively in this case, that nobody else has in that community. Not the most important guy in the community, the leader of the synagogue, Jarius. He's not experienced the healing of Jesus yet. But this lady has. None of of the others have experienced the coming of the kingdom of God in their midst, just like this lady has. None of them have experienced the poverty of spirit that this lady has had for 12 years. The gruelling life that she's had to eke out on the fringes of society. She has a perspective and an image of God and part of the image of Christ that nobody else has. What happens if all of the healing miracles, seriously go read them, are not about the individual alone, but about the restoration of the community? Because God has always been about having a people in the earth. God has always been about having a people in the earth. What was if the demoniac of the Gerasenes wasn't healed just to set that man in his right mind, but he brought a a, a liberty to the community that the next time Jesus went and visited, healing broke out for everybody. The woman at the well. What was if Jesus met with this outcast woman who had had five husbands? Not just for the benefit of this woman who had had five husbands that was excluded from her community, but what was if it was for the benefit of the entire community with her part? Because when they all come out of the village, what she said her piece. What was if the restoration isn't just for the individual, but for the community? What was if <coughs> community is the essential factor of the kingdom? <coughs> Perhaps we mistake the mistake of the in the in crowd, the saved, the ones in the know, was that they thought that the outsiders needed them. But actually, all the time, the Pharisees needed the prostitutes. The Pharisees needed the tax collectors because they had perceived the Christ like they could never do it. What if the in require the out, not in a condescending way, but in a very genuine, this is the only way I can see the kingdom? Right, I'm going to, um, yeah, what happens if the healings and the miracles of Jesus were signs, not because they only restored individuals, but they placed them back in community and the community was restored as a result? What if it was not for the sake of the community of the children of God to be made whole? What happens if it was for the sake of the community of God, the children of God, that the outsiders were repatriated into them? then this means that reaching the last, the lost, the least and the little is not some benevolent condescension on our part, but it's something that we need, that we desperately need to imagine a Christ bigger and more transcendent than we've ever imagined before. So in conclusion then, the church, our community of faith, that organising ourselves around the cross, 
This is a laboratory of love. It's all about the practice of community that both points us towards Jesus and actively conforms us to his likeness by challenging one another, by encouraging one another, by talking the truth in love to one another, by knocking the spikes off our egos, encouraging us to be more humble, by encouraging us that we can fail and still be loved. That we can still fall short and we can find people that will pick us up. That we can celebrate and know that there are voices that have been crying out to celebrate with you all along. The church is a laboratory of love, a place where material care, sharing, hospitality, mutual honouring are practised and lived out. That's another quote from this guy, Richard Beck. So again, I want to finish where I started then. With the prayer from Ephesians. For this reason, I bow before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. We're all part of the same family. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with a power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all of God's holy people to grasp how wide, how long, and how high and how deep is the love of Christ and to know his love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us to him be the glory in the church not in the individual but in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever Amen Thanks, son.